0: Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you are also called, and one hope. Of your calling, one Lord Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In the movie Chariots of Fire, which remains one of my all-time favorite movies, I try and watch it about once a year. I just love the movie. I love the running in the movie. I love the story. I love the faith. It's all about Scottish missionary Eric Little. And if you've seen Chariots of Fire, you know this story. If you haven't seen it, go out and rent it. Watch it on Netflix, however you can do so. It's a great movie. But there's a scene in the, in the, probably the beginning part of the movie where Eric Little who is a missionary with his brother and his father. Their whole family is involved in in a Chinese uh, mission. And their missionary is there, but he's also a very gifted athlete. And so they're talking about this issue of his athletic ability. And he's there with his father and his brother, and they're in kind of this living room area talking. And I, I can't verify that the conversation actually happened historically, but it happened in the movie. And that's good enough for me. So, it's great writing. They're talking with each other about the mission and, and, and Eric's athletics. And his father says, You're a very lucky man, Eric. You're the proud possessor of many gifts. And it's your sacred duty to put them to good use. His brother says, Dad's right. Running, we know you can. Strong and true. And the mission cannot but gain by your success. What we need now is a muscular Christian. I just love the way he says that. We need a muscular Christian to make folks sit up and take notice. And his father says, Eric, you can praise the Lord by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. Don't compromise. Compromise is a language of the devil. Run in God's name and let the world stand back in wonder. You are the proud possessor of many gifts, his father said. I I remember that today because I was thinking, so are we. So are you. So am I. The possessors of many gifts. Gifts for the walk. And the gifts given are according to the immeasurable gift of God's grace in Christ. That gift is enough. With God's grace alone, we have been given an immeasurable gift. But when He calls us to walk remember that before we take the first step, we are already outfitted for the journey. He has already prepared us. He has prepped us for the long haul. He has even armored us up for the fight, as we'll see when we get eventually into chapter 6. And it's with such gifts and provisions and strength in the body that Paul is thinking. And he continues. He picks up in verse 8 and says, Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints. For the good work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ. Now we're going to really get into this stuff on Sunday. In fact I think I told you that a week ago. That we're going to talk about these positional gifts. That Jesus gives to the church. Gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists. And pastors and teachers. Or some would say pastor teachers. I'll explain that Sunday. But all of these Positions, if you will, these positional gifts, they're personal trainers for the body of Christ. That's the idea. That they're given by Jesus to the body, raised up in every fellowship and throughout the body of Christ for the purpose of creating muscular Christians. To strengthen the body through the teaching of the word, through example, through the bringing of the gospel. And the section that follows... Well, this just reads like a workout plan for muscular Christianity. Don't, don't shrink back from that. When I say a muscular Christian, as quoted from Chariots of Fire, we're talking about strength in our Christian walk and not shrinking back and not having concern and not fearing. Muscular Christians. Think about that. Look at verse 12 again. It tells us, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And immediately after describing these personal trainers for the body, he describes three different muscle groups, if you will, that benefit from the strength training that he's describing here. Three muscle groups in the church. Three things, three areas in which the church is to be strong. Unity, intimacy, maturity. Note these. Unity, intimacy, maturity. We've already been talking about unity. And he now refers to unity by faith. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. What faith? Faith in Jesus. It's not, we're not unified just because we have a faith, because we have a belief system. It's not the system that unifies us, it's the Lord Jesus, the one in whom we put our faith. And this is the same concept that we already read back in verse three. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, one spirit, one God, one Lord Jesus, and our unity is in Him. And I, I'm I'm pausing here because this is bigger than a statement of faith. It's bigger than doctrinal distinctives. That is not what unifies us. The unity is faith in Jesus. Uh, Look at it this way. If I'm united with Him by faith, and you're united with Him by faith, then we are united together by that same faith. That is what we share. That's what draws us together. More than any other single factor in Christianity, Christ is the point of our unified connection. He is the issue. And it, by the way, is the responsibility of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers alike to build up the body of Christ, first and foremost, by calling us to fix our eyes on Jesus. If you are ever involved with a church fellowship that sidelines Jesus, that rarely mentions Jesus that has little to do with Jesus, you're in the wrong place. And at best, the leadership of that fellowship is shirking their primary responsibility. It is Jesus, it is Jesus, it is Jesus. Just talking to Glenn out in the foyer, and he was talking about some stuff he's going to be sharing in his, in his small group, and, and I won't even tell where it is, I'm not going to burst his bubble. But I will tell you this much, it's all the words of Jesus. And Glenn said, it's Jesus, so it's just... And he got all tickled. You know how Glenn can do that. He got all tickled. He goes, it's just truth. It's Jesus, you know. And that's the point. And if we open our Bibles and we don't mention the name of Jesus, we have missed the point of the Scriptures. And we have missed the fact that He is the unifier of His body. It's His body. We are His body. It's like talking about the body of Rick, but never mentioning my name wouldn't make any sense. Why you would be talking about my body, I don't know. But you're understanding what I'm trying to say here. And as our faith grows, individually and corporately, our muscular unity by faith in Jesus must grow as one. Along with the unity of faith in Jesus comes what Paul says here for the building up. He says, until we attain to the unity of the faith, And, secondly, of the knowledge of the Son of God, or what I would call intimacy. Now, don't misunderstand this. The knowledge of the Son of God doesn't mean His knowledge. It's not saying that we are attaining to the same knowledge that Jesus Himself has. Now, understand, yes, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us. And yes, His Spirit teaches us all things, John fourteen twenty six tells us. But in this context, what Paul is talking about, the knowledge of the Son of God is knowing Jesus. Rick, you're, you're hammering this whole knowing Jesus thing. Well, He's the point. He's the unifier and He's the point of our knowledge. Knowing Jesus, having the knowledge of the Son of God is intimacy. Paul comes back to this over and over. In fact, in the next letter he's going to write, the letter to Philippi, he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing what my church teaches. No. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Period. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, I count them rubbish, so that I may gain more understanding of my doctrinal theses. No, more understanding of Christ, that I may gain Christ, he says, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, listen, get this, that I may know him. It's knowing Jesus. This, I know I've talked about this before a few times, but this revolutionized my faith. Absolutely revolutionized everything I thought that I knew. Changed it all. I truly grew up thinking that faith was what my church taught. It was aligning myself with the precepts of men, with the thinking of men, with the rules and regulations handed down by the fathers of my particular brand, by the way, of church. And when I began to get the idea that Jesus wasn't just a figure of history, but was present now, and that this whole thing was coming down to the culmination of knowing Him and then being ultimately in His presence, it changed everything for me. Suddenly, I wanted to know everything that was in this book. Suddenly, I wanted to be with His people. Unity of the faith. And suddenly, the knowledge of Jesus went way beyond thinking and filling my head full of facts and figures. It went into the intimacy of knowing Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul said... That I may know him, and note this, I, this this verse, Philippians 3.10, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And often people will read that verse, I want to know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And we think, man, I can get excited about the power of resurrection. That sounds good. And I can also be brave about joining into the fellowship of his sufferings. Alright, bring it on. And I can even be willing to be conformed to his death if he calls on me to do that. But those are all just functions of one thing. Knowing Jesus. That's the point. Whether I live or I die, knowing Jesus is the point. Not just knowing about him or being like Him, or even living for Him, all good things, but to really know Him. So I'm going to throw out the question again to you tonight. Do you know Jesus? Kirsten just started smiling, so I know you know Jesus. You know, it's the kind of thing that when someone asks you, if you know Jesus, you can't help but smile. You can't help but have a, I don't know, a visceral reaction of intimacy. Yeah, I know Jesus. That's the point. He's the point, knowing Him. Jesus has the rapt attention of the muscular Christian. The muscular Christian, the strong Christian, is just always watching Jesus, always running to Jesus, always thinking about Jesus. So, unity is a muscle group that is strengthened. Intimacy is strengthened. And then finally, number three, maturity. In fact, He says, until we uh, all attain to these things to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And that's mind-blowing. That's where we're headed. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ Jesus. What we're talking about here is standing tall, full-grown, strong in the Lord, muscular Christianity. Becoming more and more like Him. And in Jesus, we have the perfect example of the spiritual man. Ladies, I would add, the spiritual person. The spiritual woman finds her perfect example of spirituality not in Mary. You know, not in one of the female um, Well, there are a couple that are actually called apostles. I'll get back there on Sunday. But the female followers of Jesus, not them. No, Jesus is your perfect example for living the perfect spiritual life as a woman of God, as a man of God. He's the example. He's it. And he is the perfect example because he showed us I said this before, Jesus came to this world to reveal God to man, but also to reveal man in relationship with God. To show us how we as human beings are to live in this intimate, unifying, mature relationship. And Paul goes so far as to say that we are attaining to the very fullness of Christ, the pleroma is that Greek word we've seen now several times in the writings of Paul. And here in this letter, he uses it four times. It's the fourth time we've, we've seen it. Chapter 1, verse 10, he talked about the fullness of the times. Chapter 1, verse 23, he talked about the fullness of Him. Chapter 3, verse 19, the fullness of God. And then in verse 13 here, the fullness of Christ. And I shared before, Pleroma means the full contents. Remember, it's like a laden ship that is filled to the the brink with sailors and soldiers and rowers and passengers and freight. It's completely loaded down. And that's the concept of this word. Colossians 1.19, Paul used the word. He said it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, that is the fullness of God, to dwell in Christ. Colossians 2.9, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, Make the association here. If all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, is in Christ, if he encompasses all the fullness, and now we are to attain to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, what does that mean? Now don't get out ahead. Don't start thinking, oh, well that means I'll become a Christ. No you won't. Trust me, we all know you too well. No, I'm not gonna become, but I am going to become like him. And I love how F.F. F. Bruce puts it. He says the fullness of deity resides in him. And out of that fullness, his church is constantly supplied. So as I know Jesus, guess what I'm getting with that? As I'm maturing in Jesus and unity in the body and intimacy with Him and maturity is taking place, I am receiving of the full supply of God Himself because Jesus is God. The fullness of deity is in Him. And we do have, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the very hope of glory. Now that's, that's awesome. That's big. So why is it as Christians do we feel sometimes like we're running on empty? Why do we just sing in the song, I'm empty, but I come? Why do we feel empty? And I'll give you at least one reason. It's easier to pull a bowl of Lucky Charms than to make an egg. It is easier to pour a bowl of Lucky Charms than it is to fry up an egg. It's going to take me more time to get something that that actually is healthy for me, so pour the bowl of Lucky Charms. After all, they are magically delicious. Right? As a kid, I lived on sugar cereal. I mean, Saturday mornings. If I could have it in the morning before school, I would have it. My mom would never let me. But I'd come home from school and start pouring I would go through three or four bowls between getting home from school and dinner. All of the different kinds. Sugar cereals. If if sugar was in the title, Rick was in. Sugar pops, frosted flakes, cocoa pebbles, sugar checks. Who remembers sugar checks? They had Casper the the Ghost on them. Yeah? And they were the check cereals, but they had sugar. Yeah! And they always said that they were wholesome, which made me feel better. (laughs) What wholesome even meant. Here's the point. It is easier to wolf down the empty calories of human philosophy It is easier to to feed the felt needs and earthly wisdom. And the problem is when we do that, we run out of steam. We literally sugar crash for lack of substance. We have... In the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, we have all the fullness of God in Christ Jesus to supply our every need, to strengthen us in every situation. And when we are feeling empty, it's because we are filling up on empty calories. We're not filling up on the Word of God. Now, I'm preaching to the choir Wednesday night, gang. I'm so glad you're here. But why is it that Christians find that they're just just weary and tired and worn out you know what the spirit says time to grow up time to mature time to eat food that actually will strengthen the protein of the scriptures the power of god which is fully available to us verse 14 he says as a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. And after giving those three muscle groups of unity, intimacy, maturity, now Paul turns around and he talks about three examples of half-baked, empty calories that people would sometimes rather fill up on. Things that, that are contrary to the unity and the intimacy that we're talking about here and the maturity. The first one is the winds and waves of doctrine. Now think about this interesting phrase the winds and waves of doctrine. You know, those who are tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine. I, I read that and first thought maybe you thought this wait a minute winds of doctrine I would think that would be a good thing. Because isn't the word wind a euphemism for the Holy Spirit? Doesn't Jesus say in John chapter 3 verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it's going? So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So the Spirit, the pneuma is the word, the wind if the Spirit is the wind, then the wind of doctrine is what I want. I want to be blown where the Spirit's going, right? Isn't that a good thing? So how come Paul now says they're blown by every wind of doctrine? Listen, it's a different word. There is the word wind, pneuma. That's what Jesus uses. That word is a gentle movement of air. Numa, when applied actually to wind, is really more of a breeze. It's the idea of a gentle wind, or even a breath. The word that Paul uses when he says, tossed about by every wind of doctrine, is animus. A-N-E-M-O-S in the Greek, animos. And it means tempestuous, violent wind. And by the way, that's the word that's used of the storms on the Galilee. The animus. When the wind and the waves kick up on the Galilee. Matthew 14, Mark 4, Luke chapter 8. And in fact, even the phrase here that he uses, tossed here and there by waves. The word waves there is cludonizomai from the word cludon, which is waves. And it's also used. Both words, winds and waves. Listen to this, Luke 8, 24. They came to Jesus. They woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind animus. And the surging waves, kudon, or Cludon, and they stopped, and it became calm. So the winds and waves of doctrine that Paul is referring to here, it's any doctrine that's going to blow you off course. It's waves that keep you straining at the oars rather than fixing your eyes on Jesus. And Jude says... Those who bring such things into the church are themselves, Jude verse 12, hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves clouds without water carried along by winds. And the word winds there is animus. Violent winds, that's false doctrine. That's the kind of teaching that comes along and blows you off course. Now... Some winds and waves are unintentionally damaging. Like the tree on my property that fell on my neighbor's cab. The cab of his truck. I was a little disappointed about that. I saw that a tree had gone down. I went out. I followed the tree all the way out. And I discovered that it was resting on the cab of his truck. And the cab was dented in by my, my tree. Oops. <laughs> I went and I talked to him about it. Not a big deal. He didn't really ever use that truck anyway. He was like, yeah, that's just kind of a beater. Don't worry about it. So I'm like, cool neighbor. But I didn't mean that to happen. The wind was blowing up, kicking out the Whidbey Island winds, the animus of Whidbey Island. I didn't mean for it to happen, but it happened. My friends, some false teaching is like that. Some false teaching is unintentional. Sometimes people don't mean to kick up these winds. They don't mean to blow you off course. And you can't really lay the blame on them because you're the one that was paying attention. How do you stand firm in the winds like that? You test everything by the grounded, solid Word of God. And by the way, the Holy Spirit, the pneuma, wind of God, He will never blow you off course from His Word. He will never lead you in a direction that takes you away from the truths found in the Word of God. Now there are other winds and waves that come by intentional destruction, and Paul describes them as, secondly, the trickery of men. Trickery is an interesting word. It's it means sleight of hand. And it's applied in Greek language to playing dice. Ever hear of a loaded dice? That's what we're talking about, the trickery of men. It is to trick you into thinking you might win something, you might gain something here, but you will lose. Maturity in Christ Jesus is no roll of the dice. We're not lucky to eventually get smart in Jesus. We're not lucky that we just happen to be one of those lucky few in the church. You can't even apply luck to it. Luck has nothing to do with it. It's discipline. It's the work of the Spirit in you. It's a focus on the Word of God. It's intentional. It's discipleship. So there's the trickery of men and there's the winds and the waves and then thirdly he talks about the craftiness in deceitful scheming and that is full blown false teaching. That's intentional destruction. The craftiness, that's the person who is trying to insert themselves into your life to twist your understanding of Jesus and the Word. In fact the word craftiness, panorgia, is cunning or literally false wisdom. Matthew 24:11 Jesus said many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Matthew 24:24 24, 24, False prophets and false Christs will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead if possible even the elect and Paul there or Jesus there is talking about Israel at that time. But the point is and it's interesting Jesus says they'll even show signs and wonders so you've got to be careful with experiential things. Well, this happened to me. Okay, that's great. Is it represented in the Word of God? All kinds of things can happen and not be godly. They can look godly. They can seem godly. And again, there is unintentional false teaching, but there is also, as in right here, intentional false teaching. So you might ask the question, okay, then how do we know if an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, teacher is legitimate? How do I navigate such winds and waves? Well, I think we could take a great example from Peter. See, he did it. John chapter 6, verse 68. He had an opportunity to walk away from Jesus. A tough day of teaching. Jesus had taught about eating his body and drinking his blood. I mean, that's unusual teaching. And many disciples at that point left him. And Jesus turns to the twelve and says, You don't want to leave too, do you? In other words, doors still open. Make a choice. And Peter turns and responds. One of my favorite things Peter ever said or wrote, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have words of eternal life. We've already heard from you. How could we hear any different? And so right there, Peter started on a path of correct navigation. Of how to navigate in difficult times. Well, then Matthew fourteen twenty eight. The winds and the waves were kicked up on the Galilee. It was a wild night and Jesus is walking on the water having a stroll. And Peter looks out and sees him and all the guys are freaking out. And Matthew tells the story. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Crazy Peter. But you know what? He was right on. If it's you, I want to be where you are, even if it's in the middle of the waves. Command me to come. And of course you know the story. Peter did walk on the water at least a step before he went down. Jesus grabbed him and they walked together back to the boat. But Peter was right. Lord, there's no one else to whom I can go. Lord, if it's you, command me to come and I will follow you. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19, Peter says this, we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter's life was a trajectory of learning how to navigate the winds and the waves of false teaching. He went through it. He himself was deceived by some false teaching, some legalism, some Judaizing, if you will. But he navigated because he kept coming back to Jesus again and again. And by the way, it's Jesus who said of the false teachers and the true teachers, you will know them by their fruit. You want to know if someone's truly teaching the Word of God, if someone's truly in line with with Jesus, you test everything by the Word and you will know them by their fruit. I wasn't sure if I was going to tip your... Uh, tip my hand on this one. I, I will. Uh, Sunday morning when we talk about the, the gifts, that is the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, um, there's one thing I want you to pay attention to. Something that's interesting about all uh five of these listed here. They're all word-based. You realize that? that of those five positional gifts that Jesus gives to the church, they are all Word-based gifts. They are all messengers of the Word of God. That is the primary calling of the Apostle. He is sent to bring the Word of God. The prophet speaks the Word of God. The evangelist shares the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The pastor-teacher, and that's probably more what it is, pastor-teacher, as opposed to two different words. The pastor-teacher the bring the Word. If you want to divide them, teacher's obvious. Pastor is shepherd. What does a shepherd do? He feeds. And the feeders are the leaders in a church body. So, we'll talk more about that Sunday. But verse 15, Paul says, but different than that, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth In love, You know what? Even when it's difficult to share, this is what we are called to. To speak the truth. We don't ignore truth. We don't sidestep truth. We don't say, oh, that's hard, so we're going to let someone else deal with that. No, the muscular Christian is the one who's willing to deal with the truth, even if it's difficult. Even if the person you're speaking with doesn't want to hear it, you speak the truth. But you speak it in love, and with grace. And I don't really know any other way to grow up in Jesus, but to grow up in grace and truth. Grace and truth. We've talked about that before. It's a, a two-word coupling that you cannot miss in the Bible. Grace and truth. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and and truth. And it's not part of each. It's whole grace and whole truth. 100% grace and 100% truth. All grace and all truth. Simultaneously. That's Jesus. And the way we speak the truth in love, we speak the truth by grace. And we show grace by speaking the truth. And the two must be together. It is amazing to see in the Hebrew Scripture specifically, how often these two words are paired. Grace and truth. If you go back to Exodus 34, verse 6, where the Lord has been asked by Moses, can I see your glory? And, and God says, tell you what, you can't really handle my glory. You'd be dead and I have some things for you to do. So I'm going to cover you. I'm going to pass by. And as my glory trails off, you can see that. And the Lord passes by him and he says this, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Grace and truth. The word loving kindness is chesed in the Hebrew. It is a Hebrew word for truth. He is the one who is abounding in grace and truth. Psalm 25 verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That's beautiful, because that means really keeping His law, really walking in the truth of the Scriptures, means that you recognize grace and truth. Psalm 26, verse 3, Your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Grace and truth, grace and truth. But I did a little research, told our staff this this morning, and went back, because to understand concepts... If you go back to Genesis and look to the first time they're mentioned, you can gain greater understanding, right? So I went back to the first mention. First time that grace and truth are coupled in the Scriptures. I'll read it to you and give you the context for it. But it's a beautiful scene. Genesis 24-27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken His loving kindness and His truth, grace and truth, toward my Master. And that's the first time you see it in the Bible. So... So listen, here's the context. In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant is sent out by Abraham to find a wife for Isaac. When he meets Rebekah and realizes that she's the one, he prays, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken His grace and His truth toward my master. So what's the point? The first time grace and truth are put together in the Scriptures is when a father asks his servant... Oh, by the way, his servant's name is Eliezer, which means helper. So it's when the father asks the helper to find a bride for the son. Grace and truth. Isn't that beautiful? By the way, that whole story is just magnificent in terms of the picture of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the church, the bride, all of it. It comes together, Genesis 22-24. through, or 22 through 24. Don't have time for it tonight. But that's the first time you hear about grace and truth is in the context of a bride for the Son, found by the Spirit, found by the Helper of the Father. Amazing. The law was given by Moses, John one seventeen. grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So to speak the truth in love is to gently, kindly bring grace with truth. It's not gamesmanship or conniving. It's not playing personal politics. You speak the truth because you love someone enough to do so. Well, verse 15 going on, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now that's interesting language. I mean, obviously Christ is the head, so we've got to keep that straight. He is the head. He is the one who gives direction to the body. If the head wants to go that way, the body needs to go that way. We follow the direction, the leading, the authority of Jesus Christ. It's not me, it's not you, it's not us. He is the head. But then Paul goes on and he says, "We are fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Joints don't supply. You ever think about that? Joints don't supply. In fact, they're just simply points of intersection or connection in the body. Joints are connected then by the ligaments. Remember we talked about the ligaments of peace. The unity of the spirit in the bond. The ligament is the word there. Of peace. And so the ligaments are those sheets that will go over the ends of the bones and connect at that connection point where, where we, what we call the joint But the joints don't supply. The joints are supplied. I mean, I'm talking physiology. So what is it that Paul's getting at here? And I think it's... Well, there's a more literal rendering of this sentence. It's not by what every joint supplies. It's, listen, through every joint of the supply. That's how Paul wrote it. Through every joint of the supply. Okay, well, what is the supply? The immeasurable gift of God's grace in Jesus. What does that mean? It means that we as a body are unified, we come together as joints, and we actually function together, supplied by the grace of God to do so. He's the glucosamine chondroitin of our church. <laughs> he supplies that, that strength, that elasticity, that, that flexibility between us as the joints come together. See, I always used to read that and say, oh, by what every joint supplies, so i got to do my part. you got to do your part. Everybody supplies their part. Now, you can make a case for everybody volunteering and getting involved, absolutely. But I don't believe he's saying that here. By what every joint supplies is literally through every joint of the supply. We are intersecting and connecting at the joints by the unending supply of God's grace in truth through the unity of the Spirit in the ligaments of peace under the headship of Christ. Got the picture? Now, when we get through all of that, we come now to verse 17, and from 4 to 16, Paul was on a rabbit trail. We've seen this over and over with Paul. Where he gets excited and he heads off in another direction. He originally started talking about how we walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And then he rabbit trails from the walk of the worthy to the description of the maturation of the muscles in the body. And, and it's a good rabbit trail because he's, what he's saying is we've got to mature so that we can walk this walk. You've got to walk worthy of the calling But here's how you grow up, and once you've grown up, and as we mature, now, now, let's get back to talking about the walk of the worthy, back to the walk itself. So this I say, back on track, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, having have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Man, Paul just piles on the synonyms here. Synonyms of futility, which is what he's describing. How the Gentiles walk in the futility. Here are the synonyms. Go over them again. Darkened, excluded, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, greedy, sensuality, and impurity. And all those words all just bunched together to describe moral and ethical bankruptcy. Which is how the Gentiles walk. And how Paul says you used to walk. Talking to those who reading this letter would would be hearing and, and understanding the difference from who we were versus who we are. By the way, side note, we would have far more impact in the world if we accepted who we were in Christ Jesus instead of struggling with who we used to be. That happens so much. In fact, I think a massive amount of energy is expended in the church and just us trying to deal with What we were instead of who we are. You are priests, as our friend Brian used to love to say, priests of the royal saints of the royal priesthood. Or priests of the royal sainthood. That one works too. We are a holy people, a called people, a changed people. We've been born again. We are walking a new life in Jesus Christ. How much time do you spend thinking about the old life? wallowing in guilt over the past things, the shame, and how often does that guilt and that shame cause you to repeat those behaviors that you used to do back then. And Paul's saying, you don't want this way anymore. That was futility. We've come out of this futility. And if you want an example of the futility, look at the world in which we live right now. We are watching this play out on the world stage here at the end of the age. Futility. I can't even keep up with the Trump administration, man. It's just insane. One day after another, one problem after another. I mean, being under attack, being beset by all manner of things, somebody take his Twitter account away. But you know, there were all kinds of people who, as they did with President Obama before President Trump, got all excited that here's the new Savior. Here's the one. Futility. It's futile. Paul describes the futility of the way that they used to walk. He compares it, actually, uh, pretty graphically, in such a way that it it sounds like what he wrote to the church at Rome. Let me read this to you. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled... Now, note this. Filled... With all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not not only do the same, but also give hearty approval of those who practice them. Futility. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word futility, I think of emptiness. But that's not what the word means. The futility of their thinking, back there in Ephesians 4.17. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Futility is the Greek word metaiotis, which literally means devoid of truth. So there is an emptiness devoid of truth, but the person's not empty. They're filled with something else. The commentator uh, by the name of Vaughn said, the thought is not that unregenerate minds are empty, it is that they are filled with things that lead to nothing. Futility is that you're headed for nothing. You're, it's, it's back to the cereal example I gave you before, the sugar cereal, the empty calories, you're filling up. But it's not getting you anywhere. It's futile. Paul says, "That's, that's where you were. But by stark contrast, verse 20, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. Truth is in Jesus. Jesus says, if you continue in My Word, you're truly disciples of Mine, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How can the truth set you free? The truth can set you free because He's a person. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the truth. So I am capable of setting you free. As you know me, you know the truth. And the truth sets us free. I love that Paul here didn't say, he didn't say, you did not learn about Christ in this way. Note this, he says, you did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't learn Christ in this way. In other words, it's not that we learned a system or a method. No, we learned Jesus. And not just about Him, we learned Him. We got to know Him. We've come into relationship with Him. And that's wholly different than the feeble, feudal education of this world. Because the best the world can give you is systems, methodologies, precepts. You know, concepts and ideas. That's what the world can give you, but did you learn Christ? Did you learn Christ? Which is back to my original question of, do you know Jesus? Did you learn Christ? Verse 22, he said that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, You be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see, that's what happens when you know Jesus. Transformation begins to take place. Not just education, but transformation. And Paul says, what happens is we lay aside the old... We become renewed in the Spirit. Note this, he says, the Spirit of your mind. What does that mean, the Spirit of your mind? It's literally the Spirit of your understanding. And he says you put on the new. It's that old saying, we've heard it, said it a thousand times, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Oh, yeah, it's okay. That should be a bumper sticker. It probably has been for years. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. But again, that's what we have been born into. Born again into literally becoming new spiritual beings by the Spirit of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The, the old has passed away, behold, new things have come. But I want you to catch something here. It's curious the way Paul writes this. Again in verse 22, he says, in reference to your former manner of life, he says, you lay aside the old self. He doesn't say you laid aside. He says, this is what you need to do. You need to, in essence, lay aside the old self. He says, that you be renewed in the Spirit. He said, not that you were renewed, but that you be renewed. He says, and put on the new self. It's not that you did put on the new self, it's that you need to put on the new self. I read that and I thought, you know, I think more of us as Christians need to hear that and get with the program. We've got to lay aside the old, be renewed, and put on the new self. But here's the thing, all of that, all of that should have happened when I believed. I mean, that was back then. But we're still spinning our wheels. Paul's still having to tell Christians, put on the new What's interesting is when he wrote to Colossae, he said a very similar thing, but he said it slightly differently. Colossians 3.9, he says, you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So with that church group, he said, you did this. Hallelujah. Remember when you gave your life to Jesus? Yeah, you laid aside all that stuff before. But here he says to them, to lay aside the old self as if they hadn't done it yet couple things behind this. I think one is simply this is more evidence that Paul intended for Ephesians to be a circular letter to be distributed for new believers. Because the Ephesian church was a strong church, even by the time he sent this letter to them. He loved them. He had a relationship with them. Their elders were the ones who cried over Paul, wept for him, hugging him and holding him before he went back to Jerusalem for fear he was going to die. This is a solid church, but Paul is saying to the not to the solid church, I think, but through this solid church. This is the message. This is part of what the gospel does: is it allows us to lay aside the old self, to become renewed, and to put on something wholly different. That's part of the gospel message. You get to be brand new, a completely new you. So this is more than just a doctrinal treatment to the already believers. It is, I believe, for new believers. But it's also a great word for all of us. And continue laying off that old stuff. The old stuff starts to creep on. You know, you look in the closet and there's that shirt and you haven't worn it in six years. Because the last time you wore it, your wife said, that shirt really doesn't look good on you. But you thought it did. And there it is, and you think, yeah, yeah, I look good in that shirt. I'm wearing that shirt today. You put it on, you walk out for breakfast, and your wife says, six years have gone by, and she says, you going to wear that shirt? What is it about us that we want to keep putting on the old? You know? we got a closet of the new. And our lives are new and are completely renewed in Jesus Christ. Live that way. Paul is making a, a, a great contrast The futility that is a futility of filling up unto emptiness. Or you can live brand new, born again in Jesus. So that's a great word for the new believer, but it's also a great practice for the muscular Christian. Don't put on the old again. Wear the new. And he says this, he says... That we have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then he says, therefore. Therefore. And here's where we get into the bullet point practicality. And by the way, as a side study, every single bullet point that Paul is going to give here, every single practical thing for you in your spiritual life, you see in Jesus. He exemplifies it. Look at these. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. First, speak truth. Now he already said speak the truth in love, but here Paul's just saying, speak truth. Just tell the truth, man. And he quotes Zechariah to do it. It's Zechariah 8.16, which reads, These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth. And judgment for peace in your gates. If you, if I, if we want to be diligently preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, it ain't going to happen by fibbing. Speak truth. Be honest. You know, the Bible says, first John one seven, walk in the light. Be genuine. Be authentic. Speak truth. Jesus always spoke truth truth with grace, grace with truth. But he always did it. And then Paul says, second, be angry. I like that. And yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry. Now, that's also a quote. That's from Psalm 4, verse 4, which literally reads, tremble and do not sin. Well, if it's tremble and do not sin, then why does Paul say be angry? Because the word tremble in Hebrew is ragaz. And it is translated to rage. It's shaking mad. It, you are so a- I Now, I don't know about any of you. As a parent, have you ever done one of these? You're holding your words because you know it's not going to be good. And everything within you is... And Tom Hanks does it in *A League of Their Own*. Great scene. He's trying to hold back his anger, and the one of the ladies on the female baseball team, the All-American Girls Team, comes over. She's she's had another error, same error he's talked to her about over and over. She comes over to him, and he just goes, "I would like it, you know, maybe next time you could pick up that grounder, okay?" And she goes, "Okay," and she walks off, and he goes. That's the word. To tremble in anger. And Paul quotes it. Tremble in anger. You know, anger is a a godly emotion. There is a righteous anger. There's also a raunchous anger. (laughs) There's There's an anger that's absolutely wrong. It's anger out of control. It's anger that causes you to sin. And Paul says, don't do it. Be angry. Even hopping mad, but don't. Sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Cheryl and I had a practice when we were first married. caused a lot of late nights. We're not going to go to sleep angry with each other. We're going to talk it out and work it out. And, and, you know, we learned with wisdom over time that often sleep is exactly what we needed and everything was fine the next morning. But don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't stay in that angry place. Listen, manage anger. That's what, what he's saying. Speak truth, manage anger like Jesus and I love the example of the clearing of the temple that was righteous anger man and trust me he was angry you don't turn over tables you don't make a cord of whips you don't drive animals out of the temple courts you don't drive out the doves and crack the whip and be like he was hopping mad but it was righteous anger how do you know we have one clue One proof of this, and that's out of Mark chapter 11. You can read it on your own time. Mark 11, verses 11 through 15. It's the only place in the Gospels we get this, that Jesus came into the temple and saw all that was going on, and then went back to Bethany for the evening. And the next morning, came into the temple, and was righteously angry and cleared it out. So he just didn't lose control. He didn't walk in there and go, I can't believe I'm saying, you know, and then... Anger was sin. He was angry in a righteous way. Now it's interesting to me that Paul adds in this very same sentence be angry and yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Because when we're angry, we're out of control. And when we're out of control, it's devil time. See, God is God is in control. God is not a God of confusion. God is not a God of chaos. He's not a God of wild, out of control behavior. The devil is. And when we are out of control, we have just cracked the door for Satan to do his work. To lead us into sin. James chapter 1 verse 19 says everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I would add to that that the anger of Christ does. And there are times where it is wholly appropriate to be angry. I often find myself angry at the unrighteousness in the world. I've told you before, I get angry in our fellowship when division seems to rise up. So there are things that can make us angry that it's a Christ-like anger. But in this case, Paul says, manage it. Speak truth. Manage anger. This is what a mature walk looks like. And then he says in verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. So, speak truth, manage anger, earn your keep. Earn your keep. The Bible is replete with examples of personal responsibility. You don't just rely on everybody else to take care of you. You earn your keep. You be a good steward of what God has given you. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, Paul went so far as to say, if anyone's not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Serious prescription for the fellowship in Thessalonica. You got someone just hanging on, you know, want you just to provide for them? No, uh, -uh. put them to work. If you're not willing to work, you don't eat. And then he says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. <laughs> now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And I've seen it over and over. People get into trouble when they don't have anything to do. When they don't have enough to do. When they're trying to figure out how to fill their schedule. That's, that's when trouble comes. So work with your hands. Get involved, you know. Volunteer. Earn your keep. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Oof. Boy, our culture needs to read these. But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need so that it will give grace to those who hear. So, speak truth. Manage anger, earn your keep, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. The word unwholesome here when he says let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth is sapros. Don't be a sap. Sapros, it means corrupt, putrid, rotten, harmful. And listen, when he says no unwholesome word, that would include everything from cursing to gossip, slander, hurtful words, sapros. It's all of it. Why well, don't use a single bad word. Yeah, but you're a filthy gossip, so stop it. Not you. None of you. But I'm making the point. Sapro's, don't let this come out of your mouth. You know, James talks about how with the same mouth, we can praise God and curse man. Isn't it remarkable? The mature believer learns to control their mouth. The mature believer also, by the way doesn't listen to things that make controlling your mouth difficult. What do you mean by that? I mean, what movies do you watch? The more you hear the words going in, the more they're going to come out. Especially when you're angry and you're trying to manage your anger. You get angry and you sin because now you're letting unwholesome words flow out of your mouth. This is practical everyday stuff for the walk in Christ. Watch your mouth. Verse 30. Hmm. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To me, one of the most marvelous things that we learn about the Holy Spirit in all the Bible is that He grieves. And the word grieves here is not He gets mad or ticked off or put out. I can't believe it, doing that. No, that's... Don't grieve the Spirit. Grieve means a heaviness of sorrow. I feel that sometimes. I can feel a heaviness of sorrow when when one of my children wanders into something I wish they hadn't. I grieve. You know, when when a friend makes a decision that I know is damaging to his or to her life, I grieve. I I feel that. There's there's a there's a weight of feeling there. That's the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God is not this is again where I say He is not the force not an energy out there that God just kind of throws out on the world. The Spirit of God is God. Is Jesus. The Spirit of Christ among us. The Spirit of Christ in you. And you can grieve Him. How? By letting an unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. By being angry and sinning. By any, any number, by, by telling a lie. And the Spirit just goes, oh. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, Paul's word, it cuts to my heart because I think, wow, I don't want him to feel bad. I don't want him to feel sorrow over my decisions, over my behavior. What do I do? What do you say that grieves the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you something. He is here and he is with you and he is residing in you every day until the redeeming day. He's here for the duration. He's not going away. And we said on Sunday morning, the lampstand can be taken from a church. The Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit on a fellowship can be removed. But the Spirit in you, the Spirit in me and followers of Jesus, He's here. Sometimes neglected. Sometimes grieving. Sometimes joyful. Ever feel the Spirit laugh in your heart? I'm not talking about Holy Spirit laughter. Okay. Okay. But you ever sense his joy? I do a lot of times when we're worshiping. You just, you feel well up inside. The Spirit's joyful. Don't grieve him. Now, finally, in verses 31 and 32, these are just contrasting verses of what to put away versus what to wear, landing in the ultimate greatest expression of love. Listen to this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Let's just throw that one in. As long as you're getting rid of the rest, get rid of the malice. Put it away, man. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, and here's the kicker, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Nothing we do is more Christ-like, more mature than offering forgiveness. There is nothing you do that is more like Jesus in your life than forgiving a brother or a sister. Because it was on the cross, Luke 23, 34, that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you even imagine the moment... On the cross, Jesus is in the midst of the brutality, of the horror. His own hands pierced, His feet pierced, blood draining down into His eyes. His back like hamburger rubbing up against the rough wood of the cross. He's trying to stay alive on the cross. He has final things to do. A oh, woman, behold your son, son behold your mother, He says. And He looks out and, and He says, Father, forgive them. I can tell you, I've forgiven a lot of people of a lot of things in my life. I have never forgiven someone in the midst of their horror against me. I have never in the moment of being wronged, at that moment said, forgive them. I've never done it. And that's what Christ did. And that's the example, and listen, please get this. If you have trouble forgiving anyone in your life right now, if there's someone who's wronged you, and you're struggling with the whole issue of forgiveness, I recommend three words to you. Father, forgive them. When I hear Jesus speak those words from Calvary, I think, can I not forgive? Can I not learn to forgive on the grounds of His forgiveness? If He can do that, is there anything... Any wrong done against me that I cannot forgive. Father, forgive them. And I pray the words of Christ's forgiveness from the cross would echo through our minds as we mature as followers of Jesus Christ so that forgiveness to family who have wronged us, forgiveness to a spouse or an ex spouse, forgiveness to a friend, forgiveness to an enemy, That it's not difficult to do. Because God in Christ forgave me. This is the walk. And there's more coming up in chapter 5, which we'll save for next week. But this is the walk that we have been given to walk. And it is a gifted walk. Every joint having the supply of the immeasurable gift of the grace of God. Father, thank You so much for these words. And we pray practical as they are, that we would take them to heart. That we would learn to walk this way. That we would grow up, Lord, and be mature believers, not based on age, Father, mature in Christ Jesus. Acting like, behaving like, thinking like, measured by Jesus Himself. Lord Jesus, we pray, stay ever before us. Keep our attention on you. Help us to walk with you and to, to know you and to love you, Lord, in our lives. And may we take these principles that are not the precepts of men, but the principles of God, the truths of the Word. And may we not only apply them, but Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, I pray that you would apply them in us that we might bear fruit for you. Oh, we love You, Lord. Thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.